Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Today, I am excited to have a new segment on the podcast called Therapist Corner, where I am inviting two of my very favorite anxiety and OCD therapists, uh, Dr. Allison Solomon and Michelle Massey, to come on. And we're just going to kind of banter about different topics that are really important for you to hear about and to tap into our therapist brains about things you should know. And I thought a really important topic to start with would be what are the red flags you should watch for when you're either already working with an anxiety or OCD therapist or when you're looking for one because you don't know what you don't know. And a lot of times people don't even realize that there are warning bells that should be going off with their current therapist or with ones that they are considering because they don't understand what to look for. And it's one of my biggest pet peeves because just like anyone in any profession, you don't like bad apples. And with anxiety and OCD, there's very specific evidence-based approaches that parents need to seek out. And if they get into the hands of the wrong people, especially for OCD, it can actually do more harm than good. So I thought this would be a really good topic to start with because um, you can tap into all of our expertise and we're coming from different perspectives and different backgrounds to share with you all the things that we have witnessed parents go through and all the red flags that we have seen in our practice, because a lot of us wind up getting people who have tried multiple therapists before they wind up landing with us. And also I know for me, I hear a lot of stories in the AT parenting community, in my membership community, and in my Facebook groups and people email me things. So I hear a lot of very upsetting stuff and I'm here to try to save you some time and some hassle. This is kind of my goal in life is to arm you with the tools ahead of time proactively so that you don't have to hit as many bumps as other people have. So before we get started, I want to let you know that the three-part video series that I've been talking about is starting this week. And I hope that you have signed up because I have really poured a lot of effort and energy into providing some information that I think is critical for any parent who's raising a child with anxiety or OCD is things that will kind of help guide you. A lot of times, no matter where you are in your journey, whether you've been doing this a long time or you're brand new to this, there are just some crucial ways that you should create your home environment and ways that you should be approaching this, regardless of whether your child is at a place where they're willing to work on their issues or able to work on their issues or not. And there are things that we have to do as parents in order to ensure, or at least hope for our child's long-term success and long-term prognosis. And I go all into that in this video series. It's one of those, I think, must watch series. If you have a child with anxiety or OCD, because like I said, with, you know, therapists that aren't that great, it's the same thing. You don't know what you don't know. And sometimes that lack of knowledge can really, really hurt our kids and hurt your kids. So that is why I've created this free video series. It's a new one because I do have other video series that you may have participated in before. This is a brand new one and it starts this Thursday, October 15th. And there are three videos. 
And so you can watch the first video when it's released. You can watch it at any time during the week that it is released, but I encourage people to watch it the day that it's released because then you're going to not fall behind. And then I'm doing a Facebook live where I'm going to dive deeper into each video. And so the first Facebook live will be on that Friday, the 16th, this Friday. And when you register for the video series, you will get a link so that you can join us in this private Facebook group that is totally separate from my main one. It is just a pop-up Facebook group that I created for this video series. So it will be really small and intimate compared to the, I don't know, 19,000 parents over in my large Facebook group. So come and join me in this like nice cozy one and we can really dive deep into some of your struggles. So I will leave a link in the show notes for you to join us and register, or you can just text the word survival tools, um, to the number four, four, two, 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 and we'll just sign you up through there. That'll make it really easy. So I hope to see you over there. All right, before we get started, I want to tell you a little bit about Allison and Michelle, since we're going to be doing, I hope this therapist corner segment, I'm hoping maybe like every four to six weeks, I'll have them on and we can dive deep into a topic. So Allison Solomon is a licensed psychologist, and she is the founder of the Virtual Center for Anxiety and OCD. And she is an expert in treatment of OCD, anxiety disorders, body-focused repetitive behaviors, and tick disorders. And I love her, and she is awesome. And she works in Arizona and New York. And so we work closely together because I'm in Arizona. So she's one of one of my favorite OCD therapists and Michelle Massey is amazing as well. And she is a licensed marriage and family therapist in California. And she is the founder of anxiety therapy LA and she treats children, teens, adults, and families with OCD. She is full of wisdom and knowledge. I really like to hear her input. It was really interesting to hear both of them talk about their own experiences. And I think they're going to add so much value to the podcast. And I'm excited to have them as reoccurring guests for this segment. And this is our first one. So I hope you find it really helpful. And without further ado, here is our conversation. Well, I want to welcome Allison and Michelle to our like therapist roundtable. Hopefully we're going to do this more often. This is going to be fun. We're so excited to be here. Yeah. So this is going to be like our new segment that I'm hoping to do regularly where I have you guys on and just pick a topic, something that I think is relevant that I'm seeing a lot of parents ask about. And then as therapists, we get to just like, let's just banter about it and, you know, talk about our approaches or our thoughts about these things. So I thought a really good topic to start with because you both are excellent anxiety and OCD therapists. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't get that you know, they don't get really good therapists or they don't even know what to look for. So I thought we could talk about some red flags for parents out there who are either already in therapy with their kids or are looking for a therapist on what might be like an indication, like, eh, if you're seeing this, maybe this is a little bit of a concern. <laughs> so what are your thoughts? What are some things that you think some parents should be like looking out for? I think my first one that I always say, whether it's a kid or adult is, is your therapist assigning homework? Because if there's no homework, if there's no practice between sessions, you're in the wrong therapy, for sure. There, there's got to be something, even if it doesn't seem like homework. I know I've recently heard someone calling it an action plan so that it's more likable to people and maybe somebody will follow through with it. But some sort of you know weekly homework, I don't necessarily expect it like session one or maybe even session two, but by you know the first 
couple sessions have passed, I usually will like some kind of homework, whether it's meditation or changing habits or whatever it may be, just kind of some kind of homework. Yeah. I I totally agree. And I mean, I assign homework even from the first evaluation, if it's filling out a questionnaire afterwards, usually with kids, when I start working with them, we want to set up a motivation plan. So I ask them to make a wish list, and I'll always tell them, make a small, medium, large wish list. And when I you like come that. back, mom and dad and whoever and I were going to veto all the ones that. <laughs> are not going to happen. But if you want to put a Lamborghini on there or a trip to Disneyland, go for it. But I always from the get go will assign homework. Like Michelle said, sometimes I'll call it activities, especially if there's a kid or teen that comes in talking about how stressful school is, where they're really anxious about homework, we'll kind of call it like activities or things like that practice. Yeah, I think that was a good one because it's really what's happening in between sessions with anxiety and OCD that like will make or break success. So if you're having like your three or four sessions in and you're not seeing any assignments happening at home, yeah, that's a concern. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. What else? I know that a, a lot of us um, in the anxiety and OCD world, we get people who have seen many therapists prior to us and we hear like really upsetting stories, <laughs> like a lot of wasted money, a lot of wasted time. What are some of the other things that you hear that kind of make you cringe? The number one thing for me, and I think this also goes into just finding any therapist to treat anxiety or pretty much anything, actually, if I was going to go to someone or a family member, I would want them to include this would be what we call psychoeducation, which is education about what you're treating and the diagnosis. So, you know, if a therapist doesn't tell you, this is what maintains anxiety, this is what anxiety is about, this is what you're showing, and this is how our brain works, and this is what we're going to do in order to help you. And this is how we do it. And educating the parents, I think that's vital. And when I hear that someone just launches into playing board games and, you know, it's really like, I don't know what we do. It's kind of nice to talk to them. My child likes talking about stuff and playing Roblox and whatever. (laughs) That's not to say that there's no place for that at all, but education, everyone's on the same page, everyone knows what they're doing as far as treatment goals. I think that's really important. Yeah, I totally agree. A lot of times I'll get that from parents where they'll say, how long should they be building rapport? Or, you know, like the therapist is just saying like, they're just getting to know my child. And so maybe like something magical is going to happen down the road. (laughs) You know, How long do you think that should take before parents start to get a little bit concerned that they're playing board games and they're not really, they're not getting homework. They're not, they're not skill building. One of the things I typically say, it's sort of not necessarily specific to that, but when uh, somebody calls me or it's somebody I knew from like when I was working in IOP and they talk about wanting to change therapists, I always suggest giving the, the initial therapist at least a month because Four sessions, you start to get to know there's a lot of intake questions and every therapist I think does it differently. I'm somebody who doesn't add extra time. I don't do a 90 minute intake session. I just do 15 minutes and I get what I get and then I keep going the next session. And with some clients, it may take three sessions, not necessarily with kids. Sometimes adults have a lot to talk about, 
with kids, I may sort of jump around more. I may do a little bit more psychoeducation before I get some information, but I feel like a good four sessions and you can see whether or not you're connecting with a therapist. You know, the, the kid may be off that first session. It's always awkward. I remember this one client I had, she's now in her 20s or in her like 19, but I started seeing her like when she was seven. And I've seen her on and off for years. And when her parents first brought her to me, they didn't tell her they were bringing her to a therapist until like right before. And so the entire first session, she's just crying and falling apart and like just miserable and not wanting to be there. And so like the kid could be off having an awkward session. You know, it's kind of like a first date, right? Um, I could be off that night if I, I didn't sleep or, or it's my last session of the day. It may just kind of feel like a funky fit. And then as time goes on, so I usually say give the therapist four weeks and then you can kind of get a sense. And I always suggest to people if by three months, if progress isn't being made, that's a good time to change therapists or reevaluate because by three months, even if, I'm not necessarily saying their world is going to look a whole lot different, but there should be some sort of like noticeable change within three months. Yeah, definitely. And it's worth a conversation because it may not be the therapist. It might be, you, know, you guys aren't doing the work that you need to be doing in between appointments. I mean, it's worth, Absolutely. A, worth a conversation to say, like, where are we headed at this point? Absolutely. Yeah. I say pretty much the same thing. I usually will say four sessions rather than a month, depending on you know, what it is. And the way I do the intake process is I'll meet with the parents alone first. And I know a lot of therapists don't do this, but I have them fill out information and questionnaires ahead of time so that when I meet with the parents, I can zone in on certain things that I'm picking up, whether, you know, if they're seeing me for OCD or anxiety or tics or something very specific to my expertise, and I'm seeing things on the questionnaire that are outside of my scope of practice, I'm going to focus on, let's get more information on this so I can refer you out to someone appropriate. Or if there's kind of a very basic history and then the anxiety and avoidance and OCD is huge, then I know, you know, we can talk about that. So then I meet with the child. So if I meet with the parents and it seems like it's not a good fit, I don't even want the child to come in because I don't want them to have an experience of therapy where they see me and then they're like, oh, now I'm getting shipped off to some, someone else. So yeah. that's not to say that it's never a good fit even when I see the child, but I think four sessions and I'll also tell parents and kids too. I think that, like I said, the psychoeducation part of it, knowing what you're doing, a therapist that gives resources, like for example, I give your videos, Natasha, mm. I give information on anxiety resources. And that's one of my first homework assignments is get educated. And usually just that alone will increase hope and knowledge and a lot of families will start implementing ideas or activities or having more questions to ask and so I think that alone promotes progress totally yeah and you're bringing up two good points because I think one it's good to meet with a therapist alone the first session for exactly what you're talking about you know like if they're shopping around for therapists or if you feel like it's not a good fit then you don't want that child to be like window shopping with them mm -hmm. and you can have a more frank discussion. And even if the therapist doesn't do that, I think 
asking for a parent only session to begin with. And then if that therapist is really rigid and it's like, no, this is how I do it. That doesn't set the stage for a really like flexible relationship. So I would be concerned if I had a therapist that was like, no, I no, you know, bring your child. I want to meet with your child alone or, you know, and that, that absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of the things also that I would say that's, well, now I think specific to many therapists because of COVID, but before COVID, I was doing primarily telehealth virtual therapy. So this came up a lot when I would meet parents first, I would ask for kind of a heads up, like, is your child on board with therapy? Are they going to be mad? (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. what are some things that I can talk about to get an in with them, you know, and have they had bad experiences before with therapy and all of that stuff. And sometimes I'll meet with parents and they're like, my child hasn't ever spoken to the 10 therapists that we've been to and they refuse to be in the room and we have to drag them in. And I might say, you know what, that's not a good fit right now. Let's meet and do parent only sessions and talk about ways that we can engage your child instead of giving that child another experience or for the parents or everyone. Yeah. And that's another good point too, is like, even if your child's resistant and doesn't want therapy, there's so much the therapist can do directly with you. And to have a therapist that says, well, if your child's not willing to work on it, or I can't work with them. So treatment's not an option. I think, you know, shop around for that too, because there's therapists who will work with you and and give you parental skills to, to be able to help your child alone. Now, sometimes I hear, I'm trying to think of all the complaints that I hear, like in the online communities. One that I hear a lot, which I think is weird, is like, I don't know what's going on in therapy. Like, I don't know if it's good or not. She seems happy when she leaves and I think she's doing stuff, but I have no idea. Yes. Think about that. That's, I think one of the number one things I hear. And so lack of parent involvement, even if a child or especially with teens, a lot of them will like to be seen alone. Every three or four sessions, I'll request a parent-only session, or parents at any time can request a parent-only session. I also have an online journal available for parents or kids or whoever to give me a heads up of like, by the way, you know, so-and-so didn't want to go to therapy today, or they had a really hard week, or their cat died. And then I can also give feedback with everything. But I would say the majority of kids that I see, school-age kids, I see them at least half of the session with their parents. Yeah. It's so funny. If not all. (laughs) Yeah. It's so funny because when I hear those, you know, people saying, like, I don't know anything about it. When parents first come to me and say, like, how does therapy go? I always say, look, you know your child best. You know what's going to work best. I don't want you being in the session to be an accommodation. So if they have really bad social anxiety or I'm training them for selective mutism and you being there is going to accommodate their anxiety, then we really want to work on that as an exposure. But who comes to session is to me tells so much about the family, right? And like, if I can have the parents in all the time and I'm doing some modeling, great. If I'm doing just kids, I typically 
depending on the age, you know, the younger kids, I at least check in with parents either at the beginning or the end of session, because there's a lot of times where the kid will forget something and parent will come in the last 10 minutes and say, Oh, did you talk to Michelle about blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Oh no, we didn't talk. That would be a great time to talk about it. And other times they, of course they say, yes, we did. Uh, So it's always nice to have that heads up and clue in from parents of like, Oh, there's something special going on this week. Or, you know, with the teens, I definitely find that I get less engagement from parents, uh, especially in LA, obviously this is pre-COVID, but sometimes kids would show up to therapy in Ubers or Mm -hmm. uh, the nanny would drop them off or something like that. And I actually, it's funny because I almost never request parent-only sessions unless it's sort of requested from them. It's a, I think, great idea. And it's always fascinating talking to other therapists about how they run their practice and what's different. And so I don't ever like rarely do parent-only sessions, but I do a lot of like anytime they want to check in, anytime they have curiosity. And I'm somebody, I tell the kids even, I'm very transparent. If I've spoken to your parents, you'll know about it. So even if the parent doesn't talk to them, then I'll say, hey, your parents and I talked about blah, blah, blah last week, you know, whatever it may be, because I want them to feel like therapy is still a safe space and that I'm not going and telling all their parents their secrets. But I also want the parents, I mean, you know, what I tell parents is that I get them for 50 minutes once a week if I'm lucky, right? They're there. I don't remember how many minutes or the rest of the week, but they're with them all the rest of the week. They need to know what to practice. They need to know what homework. Sometimes I'll just shoot the parent an email after session and say, hey, these are some things that we talked about in session today. It'd be really great if you could work on this during the week. Or here's this sheet that I gave them for homework if you can check in on them that's always good. So I try and get as much parent involvement as I feel appropriate to the age of the child. And again, without accommodating. I totally agree. I say the same exact thing about, you know, how many hours in the week and that kind of thing. And I do do the same thing as far as check-ins either before and after. The thing that I usually do when I do the initial session with the parents, I'll tell them, you know, the therapeutic relationship with your child is really important. It's really important that they trust me. Would it be okay if, you know, I only told you certain things in the event of this, this, or this, for example, you know, obviously serious harm or any of that stuff, but there's some, especially with teenagers, things like having a boyfriend or experimenting with drinking. And, you know, some kids, if you didn't tell the child that you were going to talk to the parents and you said something like that without speaking to the child or having an agreement, that's the end of the connection. And on the other hand, when I talk to kids, I tell them, you know, legally, your parents have the right to know everything that goes on, but I made a pact with them that we would talk about something. And if there's anything I'm really worried about, I'm going to talk to you first and help you tell them. And if you don't want to tell them, and it's something that I'm really worried about, I'm going to have to talk to them, but I want you to be involved. Yeah. And it's just setting those, those boundaries and expectations from the get-go so that parents, it's like intention. It sounds like, like all three of us are talking about intention, you know, like if the parent's not involved, it's intentional because it's an exposure for, you know, SM or for social anxiety, or if I'm going to communicate something or not communicate something that's discussed because I don't want to violate your trust. So yeah, that's a big one. Uh, another one I hear just in general about therapists is the use of 
of ERP and some, you know, we take this for granted that people know what ERP is or that it's something they should be looking for. But even just that alone, I think, especially OCD, I mean, anxiety, you could dabble, you can go to other therapists with other modalities and it's not going to like hurt your child. It may not help their child, but it's like, you know, whatever. But for OCD, you really are looking for an exposure response prevention approach. So I have heard some really bad things online where they're saying like, and I'm sure you guys have heard, you can tell me what you've heard too. Therapists will say ERP will damage them. A lot of times I'm hearing this from other countries too, but sometimes it's in America, but a lot of times in other countries, um, Australia, Canada, South Africa, where they're saying exposure. Actually, no, I posted something online recently that was from, I think she was Canadian. Some, I saw that, oh that it was have, traumatizing exposures, traumatizing. Yeah. We had actually put in, it, it didn't get accepted, but we had put in a group of us had put in a whole panel to do at the IOCDF conference this past year on the trauma from exposure and response prevention. But it, it, it really is like how many therapists, and I actually, I hear it more from American therapists about mm-hmm. how traumatizing, and I don't know how much that's like them trying to sell their own therapy as being better than ERP, but it, yeah, that, that ERP is traumatizing and that you could harm somebody. And, you know, and I think if somebody does it wrong, it possibly could be traumatizing to somebody. But I think with the correct trained therapist, you yeah. know, and, and yeah. that it's, it's more helpful than harmful. Yeah. You know, I had heard people, I heard parents talking about that. Like when my therapist says it's traumatizing and I guess I live in a, a, a cave because <laughs> I was like, what kind of therapist would say that? You know, and then I started to notice more and more and I was like, oh my gosh, this is really a message that's being conveyed mm-hmm. out there all the time you know, that we need to just nurture our children's and kind of sit with them and protect them from their fears, protect them from, uh, accommodate their OCD, and and then eventually they'll be okay, they'll grow out of it. And I think that's a very dangerous message. And if your therapist is conveying that, or even like indicating that that's a possibility, that's not someone I'd want to bring my kids who have OCD to. So I think looking for someone who's qualified in ERP would be really helpful. Where do you think people should look for qualified therapists? I have a list and it's available through the IOCDF, but I kind of compiled a couple of resources on my website and I can give you the link, but some of the questions are how, you know, questions to ask your therapist and realizing you have a right to ask them anything. You can even ask for them to show you their credentials and any therapist that gives you a rude or elusive or not a friendly response about that is if it was my child, I would be like, no way. I'm done. Conversation done. So another thing is a therapist that within the first session or two doesn't mention accommodation and how do you, you know, respond to your child when they're doing this and just define what's accommodation and what's avoidance and what's reassurance that's a red flag. But I think being able to interview someone, looking at credentials, I have parents say they saw an OCD specialist and I introduce the idea and I say ERP and they say, what's ERP? Yes. And adults the same way I've treated adults that have had therapy for 20 years and they've never heard the word ERP and they've been doing all sorts of weird stuff. And they may have loved their therapist because they may have had a great, kind, wonderful therapist for someone that would be great for depression, but 
not for OCD. So I have a list of do's and don'ts and ways to interview your therapist. International OCD Foundation is a good resource. The AADA, ABCT is another one. Those are all orgs. So AADA, American Anxiety and Depression Association, American Behavioral and Cognitive Cognitive Therapies. Therapies. Yeah. There's also Child Mind Institute. I have I posted their article as a handout on my website. It's the Parents Guide to Getting Good Care. And it's not anxiety or OCD or anything specific. It's more goes through stages of when should I seek help? How do I find a therapist? What should I ask the therapist? You know, all of those things. I think those are important. And then my biggest question is when you talk to the therapist, what techniques do you use to treat OCDs? And if they don't mention ERP or CBT or some version of that is the biggest red flag, you can ask how, how many cases have you seen? How much of your practice, what percentage of your practice is devoted to children or adolescents, teens with anxiety or OCD? Where did you get your training? All of those questions. And I always say, if you're going to ask about ERP, ask ERP as opposed to exposure and response prevention therapy, especially if you're going to leave it on somebody's voicemail, Mm -hmm. because I don't want that other therapist to just go Google what Mm -hmm. this is to be able to give you a stock answer, right? You want them to, like, you want to catch them off. So like, if they've never heard of ERP, you know, you can sort of pick that up. I think that's really important. I oftentimes, even because I feel like psychology today or therapy done are so, so well known to people, uh, places to look for therapists is to, you know, you can click on different modalities, therapeutic modalities, especially if someone's looking to use their insurance, right? So they can find somebody who's using their insurance in their area who hopefully does either CBT or treats OCD or something and to read bios and not just ask these questions, but also are you connecting with them over the phone? Does it feel forced? Does it feel like they would, you know, they know their stuff when you're talking to them? I think that's just even just like a general sense you can get from conversations or from websites. See, you know, when I'm looking at a website, when I'm referring out, I'm looking at somebody's website. Do they have key terms? Do they talk about ERP? Do they talk about ACT? Do they talk about CBT? Like if they're saying, that each client is different and I just connect with them. That's not enough for me. That just seems like they treat everything. Or if on their psychology today profile, they have about 15 different disorders that they treat, right? Like they've basically just gone and checked or on the insurance website and they've just gone and checked and they have all these disorders and all these treatment modalities. That's somebody you want to pass over because it's not jack of all trades here. We want somebody who really knows how to treat OCD and anxiety disorders, whatever the specific anxiety disorder is, BFRB, whatever. I think that's such a good point because I think that's what a lot of therapists do is, you know, especially new therapists, they go and they check all the boxes because they're like, I'll treat everything. Like I'm an, you know, I'm a one-stop shop, you know? And and so I do, I see that too. When I'm, when I was looking for therapists for my own kids and I would see, oh, they treat like literally every childhood disorder under the sun, plus geriatrics, plus this. <laughs> you're like, wow, that's impressive that you can keep up on all that. So that okay. is a red flag, especially when you see OCD, but you're not seeing ERP or any of the, the keywords that you would want to see. Right, right. 
I always show clients my psychology today profile. I go, okay, look at my, what mine looks like. Now go find somebody else's. Is it similar? Is it, are you seeing, you know, like I only have a few things listed. Are you seeing somebody's profile that looks very similar to mine or is it just a bunch of check boxes? Yeah. yeah. Another good resource for parents just in general to know as far as your child's treatment is you always want to know the expert consensus guidelines. So for example, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, even though it's not, they're not therapists, but they do an expert consensus with just so many studies and all of these things. They look at all the literature and they come up with a gold standard of practice. So on their website, you can find the expert consensus guidelines for child and adolescent OCD. And it will walk you through the treatments of choice. So for example, it'll say for mild to moderate OCD, a trial of CBT with ERP alone is the gold standard. For moderate and more severe OCD, it's the combination of medication and CBT. They never say medication only. They never say therapy only as it should never be medication. So just familiarizing yourself and they have it with every single disorder. So I think that that's important. And then another red flag that I was just thinking of that I don't know if you guys have heard this, but it's an absolute run out the door. Red flag is if your therapist is selling something, if they try to sell you essential oils or their special book or something like that, that's not available through regular channels. If it's anything like that. Are they allowed uh, to do that? Can they sell like essential oils and stuff? No, they do. do. I've seen it and there's like tons of discussions on therapy groups about whether or not they're allowed to have a second business. And some people will like sort of put it, they won't necessarily say, Hey, you should buy this, but maybe they'll have it in their office and like be this other consultant. And yeah. um, Wow. That's weird. Yeah. Kind of like if you get a massage and you walk in and there's that wall of like, here's all of the products some places push it, but some places just allow it to be there. But just by it being there insinuates that it's effective and that it's something to take to be on top of it, to check all your boxes, to be the most you know, aggressive for your child. And also therapists that promote non-evidence-based natural treatments. And I know this comes up a lot on your parenting boards and everything, so many parents, rightly so, are worried about, you know, giving chemicals and medications to their children and they're looking for natural treatments. And when I say quote unquote natural treatments, one of those things, it scares me so much because every plant, every extract, anything that even grows in the earth can be completely dangerous and affects our brain and affects our bodies. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that I think is always something to be aware of that natural doesn't necessarily mean healthier or safer. Yeah. Uh, It is funny how many clients, I have clients who are like, oh yeah, yeah, I don't want to take an SSRI, but I have no problem taking all these supplements. I'm like, 
it's such a, it's such an interesting like thought process because they think the supplement is natural or because it's not an SSRI or a psychotropic medication that it's safer than the psychotropic medications. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not regulated. So there's not enough information or research done on it. And really your therapist in a perfect world shouldn't really have big opinions. They, they should just focus on the therapy and, you know, and I find if someone's having really strong opinions about like their anti-medication and they're your OCD therapist, that would kind of concern me that, that they would have such a, a strong opinion. I'd want them to be focusing on therapy. Yeah. I mean, I have a strong opinion on <laughs> the idea of substituting any natural treatment. I'm open to things and there are natural treatments that for specific issues have been proven, but they've been proven in true research trials and they're adopted by the medical community. And there's a lot of pseudoscience and things that, you know, can sound incredibly compelling and can cite research. I think Dean McKay did a really good article. I think it was Dean on pseudoscience and things like that. So that's always something to be aware of. Something can sound so great. And I always try to tell families and even friends and anyone, would you eat a berry in the middle of the forest just because it's natural, not knowing what's exactly in it, just because someone else said, this did wonders for me. Yeah, that's definitely dangerous. The, another thing that I see, and I don't know if you guys see this, which I feel like is growing, is that OCD is caused purely by trauma. And, and sometimes I'll talk, because I'll get a lot of these families who have seen therapists who have said, or online, they'll reach out and they'll say, yeah, you know, it was, it was trauma related. And then I'll say like, what was the trauma? And it, it was like, because they were birthed, you know, it was, it was the trauma of coming out of the womb. And I'm hearing that a lot. Like, that's not just like a one-off, like, wow, who did you see? It's like, we have to rebirth you, or we have to talk about the birth trauma or the trauma of being potty trained or the like very, like just drastically different than what the research is showing. What have you guys? Not specific to birth trauma necessarily, but just like anytime I've talked to therapists who, especially trauma oriented therapists. And I see this on the online groups all the time of somebody will start to list symptoms of like OCD or anxiety and all the trauma therapists, I shouldn't say all that's generalizing, but a lot of trauma therapists will go, Oh my God. Yes. There was trauma there. You have to treat with EMDR, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, wait a second, take a step back because not, you know, and I always give examples of like, I have a kid whose parent walked out on the family and he started engaging compulsions the compulsions weren't tied to the trauma of the dad working out, but there's probably some sort of connection, right? But I also have a client who's, who was a um, PA and a physician assistant, and the grandma one day made an off comment of like, oh, wow, like you have patients, like lives in your hands. Like you have to be careful to make sure that you know that how you're reading the blood pressure machine and all of that. And all of a sudden that became a compulsion for my client of like checking because she was so worried it would be her fault. So nothing traumatic happened to her that an offhanded comment got stuck in her brain. And so it's always, you know, I remind, try to remind people that it's not always trauma-based. And most of the time I find that it's not trauma-based. I agree. And Michelle and I are kind of 
pit bulls on these <laughs> therapists websites and well Facebook groups where we will just get in there and argue with therapists that are two of the biggest things that I see and this is not to knock it completely but EMDR which is eye movement EM, De- eye movement desensitization reprocessing and desensitization yeah. okay. no desensitization <laughs> and reprocessing which I'm actually trained in I don't use but I've had training in it for trauma because I used to treat trauma a long time ago and it is evidence based for acute PTSD it is not evidence based for every single other thing we all have had some sort of upsetting or traumatic incident in our lives, not necessarily a near-death experience or, you know, anything completely horrific. But if you asked anyone, what was the worst thing that ever happened to you? You know, someone could latch on to that as trauma-based. And so things like brain spotting or EMDR or just all of these tapping, tapping is a big one. Tapping is a compulsion. If you Have a therapist that tells you that emotional freedom technique or EFT tapping, which involves just tapping different places, it can bring relief. I've seen kids bring relief because it's like, this will make you feel better, but it's actually a compulsion that turns into every time I get upset, I have to do this thing. And when you have OCD, especially, it can go out of control. But I think the trauma relation, you can have horrible trauma. I have seen adults and kids with horrible trauma backgrounds, but their OCD is unrelated or overlaps, but not caused by it. I really am of the belief that OCD is primarily a genetic and neurobiological disorder. It is very similar to things like tics or other behaviors and it is brain-based and it's very different from trauma or life circumstances. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, I mean, I've seen a lot of people who, you know, the therapist has spent all their time focusing on exploring the trauma that caused this. So they're not doing ERP, they're not doing um, any like CBT, they're, you know, if there's emotional contamination and you don't want your, you know, your mom to touch you, then they'll say, well, we have to work on that relationship. You know, like what upset you in that relationship? What trauma? That makes me so sad. I know. And I hear this all the time. You can often pinpoint when OCD came on and link it to a trauma. You know, I saw somebody throw up at school and now ever since then, life hasn't been the same. Or, you know, dad lost his job. And then that same week he started to like, develop all these compulsions. And yeah, the stress of that may have, you know, spurred on that genetic sprout that was just waiting to sprout. But are we going to spend, you know, 10 sessions exploring the loss and abandonment of that job and how that made you feel? And then all of a sudden now all those compulsions are going to go away. And I see that happening a lot. And I think that's Mm -hmm. concerning too. If you see a therapist is spending a lot of time talking about processing experiences related to OCD that would be kind of my, like, you should probably run indicator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even I, other anxiety disorders like worry, <laughs> the idea, it's not only not helpful, but it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, someone with, let's say, contamination OCD, and you're exploring that, you're deepening 
the relationship between these really scary beliefs and compulsions and giving it life instead of saying, this is a brain blip. This is something that you care about. So your OCD is attacking it because it's what you value. It doesn't matter. And I had a great quote by an adult that I saw that was in psychoanalysis for years with, and he had OCD and social anxiety. And I think he was maybe like 45 when he saw me. He said, I could tell you every origin of every issue in every relationship. I have so much insight and it doesn't help me one bit. Yeah. And I think that's absolutely true. Insight is great and it helps us develop as people. It's not going to treat an acute disorder like OCD or anxiety or selective mutism. That's why I like arguing logic with a client about something that they're obsessing and compulsing over isn't going to all of a sudden, they're not going to all of a sudden stop compulsing. And so it doesn't matter how much you analyze or get insight or understand where it came from. I always tell clients, you can talk about it till you're blue in the face. It's not going to change your behavior. What you have to do is change your behavior. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes you even see therapists who will, who don't understand the mechanisms of anxiety and OCD and they will, they will problem solve with the client. Like um, I had one person who said, you know, the therapist is saying that she should just wear gloves, you know, when she goes to the bathroom. So she doesn't have to get pee on her hands, you know, and it's like, or if she's anxious at night or she's anxious to go to that party, why don't you just go with her? And so if they're problem solving accommodations, you know, if like the solution in therapy is how to accommodate it, that's another huge concern. Definitely. Another red flag to me is a therapist who isn't willing to work as a team with other professionals, whether that be psychiatrists or school counselors or teachers. I've gotten on the phone with tutors. I'm, I'm like, whoever is available and around that kid that may be reassuring them or, you know, we want to be doing the exact same thing, whether in their tutoring session or at school or whatever the more the merrier, right? And, and any therapist who isn't willing to do that because it takes too much time or they think it isn't necessary or whatever, that's a red flag to me. Mm-hmm. And the same thing, vice versa. If, you know, I could go off on this on a whole different podcast, but when the school refuses to engage in accommodations, which through a 504 plan, through a lot of things, if the teacher refuses with parent consent and discussion about involving a therapist, if everyone at the school is like, no way, we don't do that, that's something that you have every right to do. The one thing that I thought of, and I totally agree with you, Michelle, the one thing that happened to me maybe several times, not too many, but enough to make it a concern, is there are therapists that are trained in ERP and do have the quote unquote credentials and maybe just use them in a different way or aren't great therapists or I've heard a lot of scare tactics. So for example, I've had someone come to me terrified because their therapist on the second session said, if you don't touch this garbage can, you're going to have to go to the hospital. And bullying techniques and saying, you know, if you don't do this, you're going to be 
really bad. Your OCD is going to be worse. You'll never get better. That's different than saying, this is super important. We need to do exposures. How can we step it down maybe a little bit, but you still have to do it, but not scaring them, bullying someone into doing exposures. Another thing is telling parents to punish kids for not doing exposures. I hear that a lot. And a lot of parents, you know, need direction on that because in everyday parenting world, when your child refuses to do something, there's a consequence. When it comes to refusing to do an exposure, there's a very delicate, different way of handling that. And a therapist that endorses punishment is something to be incredibly wary of. Yeah. And I think you're bringing up it's a good point to close on because it's so true. Sadly, even when you do find an ERP therapist, that's why I advocate like you have to soak up this knowledge and you have to, you have to become your own expert in this because you have to have a critical eye and ERP therapists are human too. And there's good ones and there's bad ones, you know, just like anything else. And if you're not vibing with them, even though you're so thankful you found an ERP therapist, cause we're pretty rare if, if it, the relationship's not good, or if you're just getting like this weird gut feeling that says, I just don't, I don't like this. I mean, that happened to me with my own son, you know, they were well-trained, they had all their credentials and every, and I kept second guessing myself thinking like, well, maybe I, you know, maybe I'm too enmeshed in this or maybe I'm the mom, but like, I felt, I found I was undoing things that were happening in the sessions. That's a red flag. And was told to punish, you know, oh, they have ARFID, they're not eating, you should punish him if he doesn't come back home with, you know, eating all of his lunch. And that was like the final, like, okay, that's, that's not, that's not what we normally say to people. So I think having, trusting your parental gut and also knowing like a bad therapist is worse than no therapist. Absolutely. (laughs) In in general. 100%. absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. I think one of the things too, I get a lot of calls and emails from families even out of the country in states that I'm not licensed in yet that I can't provide therapy for, it's better to have no therapist than to have someone that's going to give you inadequate care or just unhelpful care. So I think what's great, especially Natasha, all of your content for kids, e-courses, there's great workbooks and things that are done by evidence-based specialists. And so sometimes an example might be that someone calls me from Missouri or something because I'm only licensed in New York and Arizona. So if someone calls me from Missouri and they can't find a therapist, I'll say, well, in the meantime, these are some books that you should read. These are some videos you should watch. You can kind of come up with your own plan while you're waiting to find someone instead of just going to whoever. Yeah, exactly. The only other thing I was going to add is in this conversation of like good therapists and bad therapists or not well-trained therapists is there's also not every therapist for every client. And I, and I'm a perfect example of it. I have a personality um, that's pretty big. I'm very sarcastic. It doesn't work for everybody. I'm a very blunt therapist. I know what I'm doing. I'm really good at ERP. I will pat myself on the back for that. Um, But (laughs) it's part of the reason I'm here, but, um, but I'm also not the therapist for every client. And, and I'm sure like both you, both of you have experienced that as well. And that's, 
okay as a parent, you know, you're, you're so worried about, will I find another therapist or, or am I being too picky? There is something to be said of like, if your kid isn't meshing, you want to make sure if they're going to therapy, they're getting something out of it. So not just from like the knowledge standpoint, but if a client's coming to session and we're not getting anything done because they're not opening up to me because of my personality and it doesn't work for them or whatever, it's okay to change therapists. It's okay to like have your child or you talk to that therapist and say, you know, this, this isn't quite working. You know, maybe this might work again. You know, your kid advocate for your kid. I know, obviously that's what you're all here for. You all advocate for your kid and it, and it can be an exhausting job, but it's okay to not work well with a therapist and find somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. And there's that intuition too. Parental intuition is strong. And if you have the education and the background, the things that we talked about, you know, you know what ERP is, you know what evidence-based treatment is, and you just get a bad feeling about the therapist or you think they're strange in the way they relate. And maybe some people say that about me, which is fine. I'd rather have someone say, your style doesn't really jive with me. I'm happy to refer out. I'd rather have someone go to see someone that's a better match than stay with me and become hopeless that therapy doesn't work because they're not able to tell me certain things. Right. On the other hand, and I'll end my idea with this is that parents should be aware that sometimes therapists will bring things up that trigger the client or the parent or the child because of their OCD. And, you know, I had a client last week come home and tell, well, not come home, walk out of the room because we're (laughs) virtual um, and tell their parent, I hate her. I never want to see her again. And it's because I said the word throw up and it's not because I was terrible. It's because that was a huge fear of theirs. And maybe, you know, they were dancing around it and everyone was dancing around it and called it that instead of what it was. And I just went in there and said it. Sometimes that happens. That doesn't mean that it's a bad therapist. So you should always kind of check in with the therapist and yeah, because they're doing hard work and you know, sometimes they're going to push in a healthy sort of way. And the child or teenager isn't going to have a good session. And that's, that's part of the good therapy yeah. sometimes. So thank you guys so much for coming on and talking about this. Thanks I'll for having back. us. And yeah. Thank you. This was so fun. Yeah. We'll come back. We'll talk about a different topic next time. So thanks. Sounds good. See you Great. soon. Well, I hope you found that helpful. Stay tuned in the next month and a half or so. I'll have them both back on. Um, I think I'm going to post in the larger Facebook group, questions and then we maybe will just answer submitted questions so that you can kind of tap three of our brains and not just mine. And I hope that that helps. Check out their work. You can go to dralisonsolomon.org. And for Michelle, you can check her out at anxietytherapyla.com. I'll leave links in the show notes. You can find both of them. And I hope that you find the sparkle in everything you do. If you've enjoyed my podcast, you find that I am providing you with some information that's valuable in your parenting, a child with anxiety or OCD, you can hit a star on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcast to show your appreciation. I appreciate that. You can leave a comment or a review. Those are really helpful for parents who are trying to figure out if the podcast is of any value. So I greatly appreciate that. 
And don't forget to join us this Thursday for the first video. You don't want to get behind. So register now while it's um, on your mind. And I will leave a link in the show notes and you can register there. Or you can just text the word survival tools to the number 44222. All right. Take care. And I'll see you guys again next Tuesday. Bye. Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com. 